born ready. By the way, we have 35 minutes of outtakes from the last episode <laughs> that we never used because that that part leading into the theme song was just too good. I we're clearly not fine, <laughs> or we're clearly fine. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll just throw those 35 minutes. In. <laughs> That's the uh, Patreon now. <laughs> All right. What if that's our Patreon? It's just unedited episodes. That would be terrible. That'd be just our, our warm-ups. Yeah. People do that. Do they? Yeah. Oh, God. We, guys, are, the stakes are so low. Let's just set that shit up. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, everybody. Welcome to Solid Six. I've been thinking about time a lot lately. I don't know why. Maybe it's because the episodes come out almost weekly. I don't know what's going on over here. <laughs> Just marking mark time. I'm trying, I'm trying to be all philosophical about time. And Josh Allison decided to pop and lock right in the middle of it. <laughs> this is what happens every single time I try to have a serious I'm, conversation. I'm building our energy because it's about to get so thoughtful in here. Um, I don't know. I mean, we just had a bunch of birthdays. Yes. The the spring birthdays keep coming. What specifically about time? We see each other almost weekly. Mm-hmm. We have now done, this is our 97th episode. Yeah. And last week we talked about Ringo Lamb and Jean-Claude Van Damme and Maximum Risk and Natasha Henstridge. But that feels like a lifetime ago. It did feel like a long time ago. But then preparing for the show, I was like, we just did this. I don't I don't understand what's happening to me. I was actually having this conversation with my physical therapist while her fingers was in my butthole. <laughs> and the whole like situation with this where it's like time is simultaneously moving faster than I have ever anticipated. But also like there are certain times where it just feels like it's eking by. Like especially the pandemic year when it was like simultaneously the fastest and slowest year of my life. Mm-hmm. I I think that it's because we get so much, like we have an information overload constantly. Mm-hmm. We're always, always, always informed about what's happening. And so we're like jumping from one new, as I make the movements, we're jumping from one new terrible thing to the next. She's hopping on her own. <laughs> She's popping and locking this through time again. Is me <laughs> moving around. But I, but I can also see much like, uh, gosh, I forget the name of it now. Stories we tell. When he's like, oh, yeah, I hate taking out the trash because I feel like I'm just marking time. Yeah. Like, is that what we're doing the podcast, Brady? Yes, we are. Marking time. I think we are, which is just fine by me. The yeah. sands of time, but every grain of sand is an, is an episode. What's the hourglass? <laughs> Didn't Sting make a song about this? <laughs> I don't know Sting like you do. I'm sorry. <laughs> I wasn't the son of a coal miner in Manchester or whatever. We wasn't whatever. Dream of <laughs> oh man we just left allison out to dry hi hello uh we're solid six like i said i am your host for tonight i am your slightly askew triangle brady i am joined by our perfect circle allison hey and we're also joined by our god tier <laughs> parallelogram boom josh hello Hi, how you doing, Josh? I'm doing all right. As far as like your time question goes, I think that, yeah, um, Allison's onto it there. I think that during the pandemic, 
time became a blur because on the one hand, like there was kind of like nothing going on, but there was also like this hyper beat of information of all like the world events. Mm -hmm. So was it happening quickly? Was it happening slowly? Both, it seems, because now it's like, I can't remember if something happened in like 2020 or 2021 or did it happen like a couple months ago? Mm -hmm. It's all just a freaking blur. Mm -hmm. But I, I do feel the rhythm returning. And as far as like why I think maybe you feel that the way that you do is because I think we took a couple of weeks off of recording just because of the way the, the beats drop on our recording sessions. I think that we went for a while without recording and then we went back to our normal rhythm. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. that, that's my guess. Mm. You know, time is all relative. Yeah, that makes sense. Or, yeah. or is it too soon to say I have nostalgia for 2020? <laughs> No, no, no. I think about that all the time. I think about that all the time where it was like, I, I mean, I'm happy I went to school. I'm I'm happy that I got my license. I'm happy I had a career change, but yeah, I also don't think I'm ever going to be able to have a place in my life where I could just not do anything ever again. Mm-hmm. Like, did you hear a lot of people like making this the equivalent of like, this is probably the only time we're ever going to know what it feels like to retire. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. totally. <laughs> so there's a part of me in that sense where I miss the stillness of everything. But like when we're editing the show and I'm typing in like, oh my God, it's 2022. Like what the fuck happened to 2021? <laughs> like what, what happened? Yeah. Like it's just, it was gone. Well, when you're, whenever you're getting nostalgic and you need a reminder, just pull up your Stardew Valley save and that's your, uh, that's your scrapbook of your year. Absolutely. I have trying to be a completionist with tasks in Stardew Valley right now. Oh shit. You're in deep again. Mm-hmm. Tell me more. Wait, I, didn't you like a, like a prismatic breastplate or something like that? Or what was it? I, um, I didn't I, realize you were playing Elden Ring. I made it, I made a, I made an ir- iridium, iridium, iridium bl- breastplate. And then, um, have been completing certain tasks like finding prismatic ectoplasm. Okay. To obviously enhance my powers as a farmer. Mm. Clearly. Well, have you been watching any movies? Yeah, we have. I mean, like, Josh, I feel like I hijacked it. I mean, what have you been watching? I have also been watching movies. (laughs) (laughs) That was effortless, guys. That was an (laughs) elegant transition. (laughs) I warned you. Uh, let's see. <laughs> so the first thing is we have to we have to roll back the clock back a week because Brady talked about a movie. We did not see the movie, but he hyped it up quite a bit. Then we went and watched it. It's so good. The movie is called Replicant, mm-hmm. and it's by the director of tonight's feature film, Ringo Lamb, and also stars Jean-Claude Van Damme, just like last week's feature, Maximum Risk. But holy shit, Replicant was a lot of fun. <laughs> Replicant was rad. Replicant was the most acting I've ever seen Jean-Claude Van Damme ever do. Um, and I was, I was here for it. I was here for it. Also, I feel like we missed an opportunity. The fact that Jean-Claude Van Damme and Ringo Lamb kind of rhyme. We should think about that at the end of the show. Well, I thought about calling this double feature Wham Bam. Thank you, Ringo Lamb and Jean-Claude Van Damme. But that was just a little too long. So mm, okay. that's why we pick full alert. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Replicant, as we've all talked about already, Jean-Claude Van Damme completely commits to the dual roles of being both a serial killer and a child clone, like a full-grown body with a child's brain, uh, 
just slack jawed staring at the sky with like a little kid's baseball cap on and like oversized tennis shoes. Like they dress him like a little kid. He could be president one day. And and Michael Rooker dragging him around by his ear, like beating on him (laughs) the entire time. Yeah, I verged from like deeply uncomfortable to the the portrayal of Jean-Claude Van Damme and the physical abuse to being like the audacity. This this movie yes. is, is incredible. <laughs> it, it is a strange delight. And yeah. of the discoveries across the last year, like it makes me think like, all right, uh, the, you know, Delift remake down uh, really made a big splash for me. Turbulence 3 made a big splash. And I feel like Replicant is right there with it because really unexpected, fully committed roles, Tons of fun. Uh, if you're not in when you see like the gooey egg thing with like the human person <laughs> screaming inside of it, then maybe it's time for you. But if you if that interests you, then stick around because you know before you know it, there's like an ambulance like bouncing off the roof of a parking lot. Yep, Ringo yeah. Lamb. What I what I love about this too is that it was in 20, 2001, which means it's post Matrix, and mm-hmm. and so to have like the the oozing human larvae phase, yeah. Um, done really well in the matrix and then done in this movie it's great it's a it's great yeah replicant like the performances were fun michael rooker i think just naturally just has like such like menace cooked into him or maybe i'm just like scarred from like henry portrait of a serial killer uh or diary of a whatever it is yeah i just can't separate him from his role the action is lots of fun it comes at it hard and fast, and it's very idiosyncratic, like uh, Ringo Lamb likes to do. Some really sketchy stunts, like there was the mm-hmm. guy on a chain link fence that got hit by a car, and man, that guy went oh, flying. Yeah, yeah. Like he got slammed. Yeah. And then there was another stunt man in a wheelchair that got hit by an ambulance. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> right. I forgot about that. <laughs> it's like, like I know they're professionals, but holy shit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so the stunts were great. the uh, The premise is so ridiculous but like acted to completion. Yeah. Uh, So the premise is, like I said, last episode, but just as a refresher is that Jean-Claude Van Damme plays a serial killer who likes to torch single moms. Um, given his childhood, we, we find out why. Um, and so some three letter agency that doesn't exist clone (laughs) grabs his, (laughs) grabs his DNA off of hair or something and clones him into the equivalent twin, version but he's a he's basically a baby that michael rooker who's the cop or a detective who's been trying to track down the serial killer for years is asked to be the steward of um right because he's a detective that's closest to the case yeah and now he's got this like um fresh out of the oven full full grown man (laughs) yeah with a kid's brain uh, who they say has genetic memory Mm -hmm. which is not how genetic memory works by the way no we went episode three body parts two that's true Two yeah. or three? I thought it was one, but you're right. Three. It's, it's three. It's three. three. Yeah. So listeners, if that didn't make sense to you, there's bombs, bomb sniffing dogs and then there's JCVD sniffing JCVD. <laughs> yeah. That's all you need to know. <laughs> it's my favorite erotic thriller. <laughs> <laughs> That's good foreshadowing. But let's see. Other than Replicant, I went to uh, Laurel Hearst Theater on Friday. They're doing a support for the new Nick Cage movie, Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. And in support of that, they played an old Nick Cage movie, 1993, Red Rock West. I've which, never heard of this movie. Oh, really? Okay. It's a directed video. So, I mean, it, it, it did have like a major release. Fuck video. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, someone with the balls to say it. 
Uh, it's a thriller, neo-noir, western slash black comedy. It's got uh, Nick Cage. It's got Lara Flynn Boyle. It's got Dennis Hopper as the bad guy. Dwight Yoakam shows up as a trucker for 30 seconds. Ugliest man on the planet. <laughs> He's, it's a bummer. But with the voice of an angel. He <laughs> can sing beautifully. Yachum. Dwight Yachum. But the real star of this movie, I would say, who, or at least who nails every scene that he's in, is J.T. Walsh. Mm. And this is a very, you know, tried and true noir plot premise where a husband wants to kill his wife and Nick Cage gets caught in the middle of it. Uh, J.T. Walsh is the husband that wants to kill the wife. And he's great. Like, he really shows up for all of his scenes when he needs to be mean and nasty. He's really mean and nasty when he's conniving. He's conniving. I don't know. I just, for, for whatever reason, J.T. Walsh, even though Nick Cage was being the sort of meme version of Nick Cage at a, like a relatively early age, J.T. was just stealing it for me. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I know this movie is kind of near and dear to some of our friends because I think uh, our buddy went to high school or no, he's from the same hometown yeah. as one of our friends. Yeah. So we've kind of known about this movie for a minute and it was kind of nice to see it on the big screen. Was it a nice transfer or was it because it was direct video? Was it a VHS copy? I don't think it was VHS. It seemed like it, it looked a little nicer than that, but you can tell that it was not like a restored like Blu-ray or anything like that. It was probably a DVD. Okay. So, um, so with JT oh, Walsh, mm-hmm. um, his first, the movie that came, comes to me first was when he was in A Few Good Men and he ends up committing suicide. Yeah. And that was the first scene that I think I've ever seen as a kid. There was a suicide scene. And oh, wow. it was haunting. Whoa. It just totally draped its little depressing blanket over my soul. And so, yeah, you, you mentioned him and I was like, oh, yeah, I know that guy. Yeah. He's that guy. Mm hmm. Yeah, he he died relatively young, like way too young. I think his career was really kind of starting to spin up and he died in like 1998. I don't know what he died from, but damn. But it sucks because he was, uh, he definitely had a, a big shadow. The other thing I was going to mention is that on Saturday, Saturday was kind of an ups and downsy kind of day for me. Uh, I, I worked on a big project. The project took all day. And then at the last possible second, I biffed it. So I was doing, I kook slammed it. Um, <laughs> working on a metal casting project and it basically takes all day to get the mold and then the crucible of molten aluminum up to temperature. And then as I was about to pour the mold, I spilled the crucible all over the driveway. It was like, and and I have to like, I, I always, I always watch when Josh pours from the crucible because I, I want to make sure that if anything happens, like there's someone else there that if for whatever reason, like Josh got hurt, Right, I could be ah. there to like help out. So, I thought you were saying you you wanted to be uh, an eyewitness. So if somebody accidentally or blames Josh for murder, well, that's say that, that too. I mean, I'm, I'm certain we probably have a Karen in the neighborhood somewhere that's like he's causing us cancer or whatever. But so Josh pulls the crucible out of his little kiln thing, and and I and I just in that moment I was like, God, what if that spills? And then the. <laughs> And then, like, not two seconds later, it totally toppled over and, like, aluminum got all over, all over the driveway. And Josh, like, and I've been in this position so many times, but he, like, he, like, turned up to scream at God. <laughs> and, I, and I also, like, felt responsible for, like, thinking it in the first place. And I was like, okay, cool. Are you okay, bud? I'm going to go inside. <laughs> and just, like, shut the door on <laughs> 
No, that was that was for the best because I <laughs> I was about to like spontaneously combust in that moment. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen him that upset. I was about to like lose my mind. Yeah. Um, Not to get too personal, but uh-huh. was this a uh, week in the arms? Was this a, because you hadn't eaten or had it was water? Like it, it, Did you trip he, on the ground? He rests it on like the top of the kiln and it was just uneven. Yes. Yeah, so it came down. Basically the, yeah, the lid of the, the furnace that I use is like a, it's like a fire brick. And I have to pull the the kiln apart to get the crucible out. And so like the, the lid is kind of a natural spot to just park it on there. So it doesn't like react with the temperature change on the driveway, but it's not the perfect surface. And I just, I was in a hurry. I put it down without being very, you know, considerate of it. And I just bobbled it. I just, I seriously just biffed it and it fell over. So what does liquid aluminum do on a driveway? Looks pretty. It looks cool. Uh, it turns in like Terminator 2, like, you know, chrome. And then it starts to like grab all the gravel. <laughs> and yes. so when, after, after it cools for just a moment, you just like scrape it off okay. in like a big pancake, a big metal pancake. Yeah, it's not a big deal. And it's so it's light, it's lightweight enough that like grabbing a shovel or something to turn it over is, oh, yeah. It's no big deal. Yeah. It's, it's, it's you won't even need a shovel. It's not that much aluminum and it's so lightweight. Did you save it? And oh, we yeah. can get it engraved. I'll, <laughs> I will probably Josh's trophy. Yeah, right. This is my uh, my art piece. So I went out that night, and uh, Allison was hanging out with a friend. I went out to a show. There's like this local. It's actually a, a biker club, like a biker gang. They have a clubhouse, and I went and saw a show at their clubhouse. Some friends' bands, some other bands. Um, but what was funny to me is. There's some songs. It's like street punk stuff. I don't know all the the lyrics. I don't know all the words, but everyone else seems to. And there's a song where everyone's like uh, singing along, and it's the very end of the song. And you know how like some songs, there's like a like a or like a like right mm-hmm. at the end of the song, mm-hmm. and then like a guitar riff. So like uh, like Welcome to the Jungle. Like, right. I'm gonna bring you down. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, like that. Yeah. yeah. So the song ends or the song is about to end and everyone says the hua thing, but everyone gets the timing wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, that was wonderful. <laughs> so between Replicant and Red Rock West, those are the movies that I've been checking out. Nice. Someday we'll get to talk about Geostorm, but... Maybe not. You don't not, have to. No. Moonfall. <laughs> oh, yes. We will be, uh, we will make sure to talk about Geostorm when we watch Moonfall. I'm thinking about getting a completely new subwoofer just for this. <laughs> Standing in front of the subwoofer, she's like, mm, this sounds like diarrhea. We gotta, oh, gotta get a new one. Oh, no. Let's go to Capri and be like, hey, can I get a thousand dollar subwoofer? I just want it to like rock the meat off of my bones. That's what I want. Like when, when we're watching this fucking movie. I'll make sure to calibrate accordingly. Thank you. Mm-hmm. How are you doing, Allison? <laughs> Again, smooth transition. So smooth. <laughs> uh, I'm good. I had a nice, I had a nice weekend. It was a very, um, 
I had a very social weekend and it was a very like girlfriend heavy weekend. So I had like drinks with the ladies on Friday and then I uh, had like my best friend from forever uh, spend the night with us on Saturday into Sunday. So lots of um, lots of entertaining, lots of catching up, lots of advising, lots of drinks, lots of being advised, you know, girl talk. I've known this for a long time, but I but I also think that like girl talk tends to be a lot more crass than dude talk, right? Is it? I don't know. I got the pube thing wrong, so don't ask me. I feel like guys are, at least in my circle, are less willing to engage with difficult topics with other guys. I see. Yeah, that's so, that's my take on it. Yeah, it, there's just very little. I mean, like between the ladies on Friday, like the three of us were just exhausted, and we were like, let's just get into it, girls. Three hours of a lot of deep shit. So nice. it, it was it was good. I'm tired. I started journaling again. Oh, cool. Yeah. So that's that's the thing. Do you have a journal that you had existing or is this a new? Uh, no, Josh's mom got me a journal for my birthday. That is now by the bed. I bought myself a nice fountain pen yesterday that I'm very bad. Hell at using. yeah. Very bad at using it. I was writing. I was writing a thank you card today and it was just like spitting everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, so that's like the spitting, the, spitting the truth. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yes, but it was just like it was ink was just like, and I was like, well, you know, I'll Spl- like, I'll explain this to her when I see her. <laughs> Splotchy ink is either somebody who's just about to die or a serial killer. Yeah, There's no in between. Uh, yeah, I, I often describe my handwriting as serial killer esque, so that makes sense. If your handwriting starts turning into runes, <laughs> oh, that'd be dope. Just be aware. Yeah. Now, with the fountain pen, do you does it make you feel obligated to do cursive and a little bit more ornate? It does glide very well. I felt like I was able to get away with not completing my handwriting as well as I normally do, but I could I could just go in and add like a little wisp and be like, yeah, it's a T. Mm. Yeah, look at that; they're connected Wispy. now. Okay. Yeah, right. so, mm-hmm. um, impressionistic. Thank you. So anyway, um, uh, Jordan and I watched a movie. We watched Deathgasm. Oh, yeah. It's a New Zealand film from 2015, directed by Jason Howden. And it's really reminiscent of the metal genre we just went over for Trick or Treat and Black Roses. Mm-hmm. So it's same idea, a young guy, and it's a it's a black comedy. Young man uh, and another dude create a metal band. They somehow stumble upon these ancient, ta- not tablets, but like, ancient writings of music and they they do this like scrolls yeah like sludge metal song that comes on and on on accident like turn the neighborhood into the undead and bring about the antichrist oh cool (laughs) so um and it's pretty goofy it's kind of a zombie movie meets black roses meets coming of age kind of meets like um but i'm a cheerleader kind of whoa did not expect that movie I don't know. It's got that like it's got that like same kind of feel to it. So mm-hmm. it was cute. I liked it. I couldn't always understand it. That the New Zealand accent is very thick. So it was fun. What prompted this one? Uh, Jordan wanted to watch it. She had stumbled upon the picture of the the goth with like the ah. dr- dressed up Philly girl in, in the pink, and she's like, "We well, want. I want to watch this." And I was like, "Let's watch it." Oh, so a dressed up person and then a goth. I can see the yeah, and it's, and it's used. It's like the, is it the where they're eating ice cream? Yeah, they're eat, ah. so it's it's a meme now, but it's it's like the super goth kid who looks like Timmy Tam Chalamet or whatever Sh- 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 Um but He's wearing like 
corpse paint, right? Yeah, he's wearing corpse makeup, and then it's got basically like a bubblegum, blonde-haired, cute, cutie pie girl next to him, and they're both eating ice cream in a very demure kind of position for both of them. Mm-hmm. And so it's been used as like, you know, what I look like, what my personality is kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we watched it. It's it's funny. It's cute. Like a one-time through situation is fine. I, I'd have to say of the two movies I watched last week, I, I would say Replicant totally like fucking killed it, but you know, whatever. <laughs> um, how are you, Brady? Time flies. Like I said. <laughs> I dream of rain. LA, LA. <laughs> Uh, well, I thought last week that I got it out of my system. I thought that I was going to fly free from prison, but I got sucked back oh, in. No. I'm back in holy jail. Back in, I, I failed to appear in court. <laughs> oh, man. Boner prison lockdown. Uh, I went to go drop off some movies at Movie Madness, our local home video store. Uh, Did they have like a spe- like the staff picks? And it was just like no. I wish. I hey, Brady, dump your load here. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Capri's got to be enjoying this though. Oh, she loves it. Yeah. That's why I do it. Is I just I love. That's, that's why I do it. T- uh, totally. I love that. <laughs> um, no, I'd heard of Jagged Edge before, and uh, I. Didn't realize that Jagged it's re- Edge. Yes. Yeah. This is from 1985. It's not a boy band. Okay, no. So it's the other one. No. <laughs> this is written by Joe Esterhaz. He wrote Flashdance, <gasps> Showgirls, Basic Instinct, Sliver, and the movie I brought up two weeks ago, Jade. No shit. Mm. Well, so- Jeff Bridges in a in a erotic thriller. I'm pretty keen on. Yeah, so opposite of Jeff Bridges is Glenn Close, who plays his lawyer. And Jeff Bridges is on trial for the uh, murder of his wife. He also plays the editor of a newspaper. So he's, you know, highly regarded in the the community. He comes across as one of the people who really altruistically tries to run a newspaper, right? There's a scene, for example, where he makes a point to tell his editorial staff to not provide a slant or bias in his trial. Mm. And he's like, I work too hard, too long for this to fall apart because we central sensationalize anything. So make sure you don't do this. It's like, Oh, he's a stand up guy trying to, you know, free press. Go for it, Jeff. Uh-huh. Meanwhile, Glenn close, she's got the emotional hangover of having a guy serve life. I believe for a crime he didn't commit for reasons. You'll have to watch the movie. So she is brought back in to do a criminal trial for the first time in a long time by her law firm. Yeah. And so the the guy who runs the law firm is like dangling the keys like, hey, you can be a partner if you do this case. Mm. She's like, mm, I don't know. It's a rich guy. I don't want to do this. And then she signs on and then Jeff's like, hey, do you want to ride horses with me? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> and Glenn's like, not only do I want to ride horses with you, but this is the hottest thing I've ever experienced. So yeah, they they hook up. <laughs> pretty much. This seriously, I mean, that's about as as deep as the romance seems to go. Because like Jeff Bridges for sure uh, is charming, but like he also does that thing that like he did in Starman. Remember in Starman when he's like the Jean Claude Van Damme alien human baby? He's got a little of that at times where I'm like, I don't. I don't see it. I don't see why somebody would want to hook up with Jeff. 
And then across the table, you've got Glenn Close, who I have no idea. <laughs> Sorry. What about? Let's just say Cruella, Cruella DeVille makes a lot more sense than Glenn being in every single erotic thriller from the 80s. I do not. It does not make sense. Especially in this movie because she's supposed to be. Oh, man, I'm such a dick. What? Do it. She's so she's so harsh looking to me and she's got strange features that like being in a role where she is seduced by this charming guy kind of didn't make sense to me from that angle. But the writing kind of makes sense to me in the fact that she's I don't know. How do I even describe it? It's very it's I don't know. Well, it's also, just unique. Also, it's they just, make her look matronly in this. You know, with like the the fucking like twelve inch shoulder pads on either side, and her, you know, but that was her thing. Well, a big theme in like a lot of erotic thriller type stuff is the idea of like losing control, like staying in control, losing control. So sometimes you have to have like the the looser bad boy, uh, and then you have to have like the kind of stuffy, sort of in control. <laughs> he looks at he looked at me because Josh came home drunk on Saturday, and he was like. Girls always go with the bad boy. <laughs> no, well, hang on. We were well. well, well we you, were, you, you girls were talking about it. Yeah, we like, were, we were. But okay. do, we, I don't know how it came up with like the bad boy thing. And Josh was like, "It's true." <laughs> <laughs> and then I farted and passed out. <laughs> well, that, that's my thought. I don't know. Is that how this dynamic plays out in Jagged yeah, Edge? Yeah, I think that's what makes it work well is that she is able to flip the switch and come across a certain way in a professional setting, right? And mm. so she loses herself and mm. allows herself to, you know, be a certain way. And, and she is divorced and has uh, a kid who's a pretty precocious, smart kid who's very observant, has some kind of adult-like qualities. And so I think it's implied that she has to be super on point with her son because he acts like a little, a little adult that keeps her accountable in a way. Jeff Bridges, freewheeling ranch on the coast of wherever in Santa Clara. I don't know. Oh, sure. Probably. Yeah. 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 Just sweeps her away from her townhome overlooking downtown San Francisco. Sweep me away. I want to ride on this horse with this new sexy man. I want to (laughs) get, down on this dude who's really high, but I gotta defend him in court because he may. Be- <laughs> Wait, do you want to keep go? Going? Go. Well, just I could use a snack, it was a snack break. <laughs> oh man. So what also makes this movie really good is Robert L- Logia, Logia. He was in Independence Day. Lost Highway. Mm-hmm. You know him? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so he plays the right-hand guy to Glenn Close, and he's just a guy who day drinks and swears and is basically pounding the pavement. Is he Glenn a lawyer Close. or is he a private detective? That's a really good question. <laughs> he's, he's, just yes. like, he's just like a drinking buddy? Yes. I think private detective. Okay. I could be wrong. I though. can see that. But he's charming as hell because he's just swearing up and down, and mm. you know everyone else is trying to keep up a professional demeanor. So yeah, I'll work. I'll work my way down the list of uh, Joe Esterhaus movies. I think I'm down to Sliver and a few others, but um, I don't know. I, I can't. I can't get out. It's okay. I don't know if I want to. I think that. I think that your wife has been wanting to be in this genre for for a long time. Yeah, we've talked her out of so many things she's wanted to watch. Like, That's true. Let's just give this yeah. to her. Yeah, maybe Magic Mike was like a cry for help. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was. <laughs> Josh, you 
You nailed it. <laughs> She's like, hey, hey. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think you see her more than you might think you do. <laughs> well, I hope your your journey into boner prison will at least produce like some kind of result, like some kind of like I need like a Brady. These are the the horny jail like must sees. Oh yeah, I'm gonna be in this prison for a while. Can we make a list and just call it horny jail? Solid six forward slash horny jail. The horn dogs horny jail. I like that's that. my nickname. Yeah, yeah, I like horn dogs. <laughs> Brady dog. Well, everybody, as a reminder, you can follow us on Twitter, Solid Six Podcast, Instagram, Solid Six Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Voicemail, Solid Six slash voicemail. We haven't gotten one in a while. I think we scared everyone away. Come back. Uh, email us at podcast at solid six net. Send us a tweet. That's cool. Just tell us what your favorite Ringo Lamb movie is or Hong Kong action movies are, whatever. We sure do love hearing from you. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Before we get to the feature, Eh? I want to make a correction. Mm. Uh Oh, Oh. okay, good. So some people on this podcast play fast and loose with facts. All of us. I happen to be one of them. Yes, me. And last episode, I know that uh, Allison had a mea culpa about... Hong Kong action movies, and I very much appreciated it. I was playing fast and loose with Hong Kong action because I was feeling cavalier. Chow Yun Fat, I mentioned he burns a $20 bill in full contact, which is a Ringo Lam movie. That is incorrect. He burns a $100 bill in John Woo's A Better Tomorrow. I see. Uh, okay. Okay. So I was editing and I was like, ah, I could edit out, but I, you know, artistic integrity and all that. So what is the, is there like a common, does something happen in both scenes that like cause the wires to get crossed? I have no idea. Yeah. No idea. Just, but a memorable image then. I mean, one of the most iconic 80s Hong Kong action mm. images for sure. Other than John Woo holding a baby and shooting people in, <laughs> here I go, I'm going into the deep water. The killer, the hard boiled, one of them too. Oh yeah. One of them yeah, two Yeah, hard boiled. It might have been the killer. Hard boiled is the one where he mows down the entire hospital. I just I think about like hard boiled, like he's wearing a vest and he's got a shotgun. Is yeah. that hard boiled? So, dude, they've all I got vests and shotguns. I haven't seen those movies in like twenty plus years. So, yeah, yeah, time for a rewatch. Yeah, for sure. So I don't want to make a correction on my correction, so I'm just going to stop here. <laughs> while I'm ahead. <laughs> Any other corrections the two of you want to make from listening or editing? I, there's, I'm there's, sure a, there's, there's a bunch. So many. Like, I can't. I, no one has called us out yet. I hear them when I re-listen to our shows, where I'm like, "Oh my god, that was not even the right pronunciation of the wrong word." Not even playing the so, right sport. No, yeah. I would like to say that I'm doing my best, but I'm doing pretty good. Are you not doing your best? We demand the best. I'm yes. <laughs> <laughs> The listeners just heard behind the curtain right there. Are we going to start the movie? (laughs) (laughs) There is no reason for what we seem to understand as words between us. There is no reason but that we're caught behind the hours that have seen us. Taking so
So last week we talked about Jean-Claude Van Damme a bit and not a lot of Ringo Lamb. And this is a double feature about Ringo Lamb. So let's let's get into him a little bit before we dive into Full Alert. So at the time of Full Alert in 1997, he was coming back from the U.S. Uh, from making Maximum Risk. And he has uh, mentioned multiple times that he was very excited to get back to Hong Kong because he found the American way of making movies to be pretty limiting. And the way he reflects that is through money and preparation. He said Americans have too much money or American production companies have too much money so they can basically just buy out the street. So in the case of Maximum Risk, you buy out an entire street in some, in this case of Vancouver town or Vancouver area, I believe. Mm -hmm. And you do a shit ton of master shots which for those who don't know, a master shot is uh, seen from beginning to end. Um, and that way you can pick and choose when you're splicing back and forth between different angles. In the case of Ringo Lamb's approach normally is he likes to do one master shot. And because uh, in Hong Kong, it's very difficult to get film permits. He likes to film illegally. And so his movies have a sense of normally have a sense of kinetic, not slapdash, but like a anxious feel to them. Mm-hmm. And he recognized from working on Maximum Risk that it kind of neutered his ability to tap into what he likes to do. So that's one. The other thing is that Full Art came out in 1987, which is the year of the handover of Hong Kong. So as a refresher, Hong Kong was an area that the Brits had control over for about 150 years. It was an important trade port for opium and tea. And through their colonialization and imperialism, they basically strongholded the Chinese to keep this land by brutalizing them through uh, naval warfare. And the Brits, sensing being overextended with their empire, proactively set a lease in 1899, set a lease for 99 years. So that, uh, that's 97. So in the lead up to 97, I mean, there was a lot of anxiety, right? You had Tiananmen Square, which was a symbol of democracy or democratic students pushing back against mainland China and getting crushed. So there was hints in the 80s of what was to come. Well, in full alert, Ringo Lam, recognizing the tenuousness of of the situation, wanted to capture Hong Kong before it changed. Mm. Okay, I see. And so he's treating Hong Kong almost, or he's treating full alert almost like a documentary of Hong Kong at the time. Uh, That's interesting. Because I, I had a lot of like uh, questions about this movie, about what it was like trying to achieve and like understanding the city and understand some of the internal politics. Uh, you talk about the handover. And immediately when I was watching this movie, the moment the bad guys are mentioned in reference to Taiwan, I thought, okay, because there was, there was no mention of like triads or like mafia type stuff. They only mentioned Taiwan. And I was like, oh, is this some kind of like early like Chinese mainland government, like Hayes Code style situation where they have to identify the bad guys as being like the enemies of the state in order for them to be bad guys. I never got like the the mafia connection. I only got like, these are terrorists from uh, the US-backed imperialist Taiwan yes. to try and like disrupt the peaceful, harmonious bliss existence of, of uh, Hong Kongers. Yeah, I think he wasn't censored. He was worried about being censored, but there was more of a self-censorship in the fact that his movies from the 80s, the On Fire movies like uh, School on Fire, City mm-hmm. on Fire, mm-hmm. uh, Prison on Fire, he got a lot of criticism for being like pro-triad um, 
and there were a number of people on his shoots that ended up being members of the triad. So I think he wanted to distance himself from this perception of, yeah. Okay. Of being a certain okay. way. That makes sense. The other thing is, is that he wanted to have a bit more success. So whether it was maximum risk, having some criticism, but also his comedies, he worked on a, a comedy with Jackie Chan and Choi Hark um, called Twin Dragons, where Jackie Chan plays two Jackie Chans. It's like a mistaken identity movie in 92, where he did all the action sequences. That wasn't uh, very well received either. So he's said multiple times over the years that he was feeling hemmed in to do this style. And mm. so this all culminated in full alert kind of as his like, fine, fuck you. I can make the movie that everybody wants me to make, but on my terms, right? Yeah. Ah. yeah. Just give me the money. I'll make the movie on budget, but just give me creative control. And that is pretty common for his action movies. There is a murder. She wrote connection. Yeah. yeah! So the handover is a backdrop for a murder she wrote episode called A Death in Hong Kong. Oh, wonderful. That's great. Okay. Who did she kill in Hong Kong? I don't know. Ring of Lambs like, has her in a car chase. If we can have it so, I mean, maybe because we haven't hit 100 episodes yet, maybe from this point on, because we keep kind of talking about like, we're going to change the Twitter to look like that. We're going to change the Instagram to, be, Instagram to be a fan page for Blurg. Like, what if we just made it now on that every double feature that we do has to somehow circle back to murder she wrote maybe it's not that hard maybe we can maybe we can do like a seven seven degrees of separation for every movie that we do you know the main guy from circuitry man was an emergency road episode so i'm pretty sure that we can make murder she wrote work for us we have to change the name of the podcast and then when it gets really dark and bleak is when there's a horny jail reference to murder she wrote she seems like she'd be super into some horny jail stuff. No, she does not. Wait, what's her name? Angela Lansbury. Angela Lansbury likes she, to get dicked down a, like every once in a while. If you give her a, yeah. a, a Jeff Bridges. No way. A Magnum PI. A Magnum. Oh, yeah. A Magnum PI for sure. She's married to her books, Allison. She. If she's is like asexual. a lot of women I know who's married to her books, she's reading a fuckload of romance novels. <laughs> Yeah, the, the girls who are married to the books, they have like a really deep dark side. Yeah. Like, oh, I know. There, there's a lot of librarians that have like a secret dungeon. So, why don't we get into Fuller? Fuller!
All right, full alert. Stars are Detective Inspector Pow, who, um, shoot, how do I want to describe this? Inspector Pow is like a very serious looking. Um, He's a crusty blue collar cop. Weary. Yeah. Yeah, world weary. Yeah. Danny Glover, too old for this shit. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he's in charge of this case that they basically get a confession from Mock Kwan fairly quickly uh, for the murder of this guy who was stuffed in a water well. And this apartment complex has bloody water, which is a nice little touch. That was a great opening sequence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So within a few minutes, our bad guy is in prison, which I thought was a nice little uh, trope, or that was a nice little inversion of the trope of like trying to track down the, you know, this cat and mouse game. Yeah. And so, Fast forward and this group of criminals that are related to the bad guy uh, are all trying to set up a heist of money in a vault at a jockey club, which is rich person's way of saying horse track. Um, And so the police are onto this crew. And so there's a cat and mouse to basically keep this guy from getting released from prison because they know that they're going to try to break this guy out and scene. Yeah. And yeah. more more happens, obviously, but yes. That's this and a gist. So what did you um what were your first impressions like going into this within like the first five minutes and like what you had seen from Maximum Risk? I I was really excited because the the man that's drowned in like the water tower on on the building has like a samurai kind of like theatrical mask put on him with like these weird dishwashing gloves. <laughs> And I was like, that's really scary. I mean, and, and the water's all bloody and, you know, they're going in there and they're trying to figure out what's going on. I was like, oh, maybe there's like a supernatural tinge to this. I'm like, oh, what if we got like like angry spirits? Um, it's not like that at all. No. Um, however, I did, I, I did recognize very quickly. I'm like, okay, we already have our main villain in custody. So what is this supposed to look like? And so I might largely, I thought it was going to be an interesting chase heist to get him out of prison and not uh, what it ended up being. Yeah. Similarly, uh, my initial impressions were really positive. Uh, The whole thing of like the health scare at this apartment building and like there's something wrong with the water and then the water's blood and they find the, the architect with like eyeballs gouged or not gouged bulging uh, in the cistern. That was a great way to open the movie. I thought that was a lot of fun. As far as the Matt Kwan character getting taken into custody pretty quickly on, I was like, okay, well, they're, they're setting up some kind of like rivalry. They want to have like an early face-to-face. And then that kind of echoed itself throughout the whole movie where I think either Ringo Lamb is either uh, purposefully aping or has maybe just been incepted by um, Michael Mann's heat where he's got this like Pacino versus De Niro thing where he wants he wants the the villain and the hero to have some kind of like active relationship where they understand each other. The difference between Heat and Fuller, though, is that Al Pacino's coked out of his mind in Heat. So, mm. yeah, there, there's no coked out characters here. It's all very self-serious and kind of grim. Yeah, very much sweaty. so. Very much yeah. so. And the clothes fit in Heat. <laughs> yeah. I think it's like a big thing for you is that oh my the ill-fitted, ill-fitted costuming. I was going to save this for later, but one of the things I've noticed through all of these Ringo Lamb movies that I've watched recently is that he has... I think part of his opinion about uh, a realistic worldview is that clothes are not tailored. 
And one of the reasons why people in movies look like people in movies is because they're not wearing off-the-rack clothes. Everything they're wearing is tailored to them, or at least been altered a little bit. So when you have a bunch of regular people who aren't wearing makeup, who are wearing normal street clothes, or maybe even purposefully ill-fitting street clothes, they look like trash. (laughs) And Jean-Claude Van Damme looked like dog shit. Uh, Michael Rooker looked like like trash. All of these people in full alert, they all look like junk. They look terrible. And I recognize that having clothes that fit is part of like the movie fantasy, but it is like incredibly jarring for me. (laughs) Clearly. This is hilarious. It looked like they're wearing like, you know, suit and tie, but they look like they're wearing like sweatpants. Do you honestly think that he would go through all those lengths to film in realistic settings geographically to put them in clothes that aren't real? It's like he sent him to like fucking, like, I don't know, like men's warehouse or something. (laughs) Yeah. Like the, yeah, like the sale, sale rack at men's warehouse. Maybe that's all they could afford. Maybe it's a commentary. They had a lot of action stuff going on. I bet. I know that they didn't have permits, but I, I, I'm sure they could afford a bit more than. Oh no. I mean the characters, like it's an, it's an indictment of. Oh, oh actual characters are able to they're afford. men and they're not thinking about it and they're trying to be comfortable and they're killing people wow this episode is not going so yeah it was surprising for me as well and it really started with maximum risk is how bad the clothes were and having okay like well maybe it's just like a 90s thing like no 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 there's having watched three movies now i can definitely sense that there is a this is not a mistake. This is not one or two people in like the wardrobe department. Like this is like an intentional perspective on humanity hmm. for clothes to not fit correctly. I, what if it's a artistic choice because he's trying to say that they don't fit into society and they're just uncomfortable. It's like a, a symbol of anxiety. You know, because it's I'm not going to dignify yeah, that be- with a response. <laughs> because it's Ringo Lamb. I'm going to say that that's probably right. And I, applaud you Brady for taking the step back to assess the movie in such a critical and artistic way. Josh is the one that's applauding and approving his choice. He's not, he's not approving of anything or applauding of anything. What the, 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 how are we stuck on this topic? (laughs) Because I can't get over it. That's how, that's why we're stuck on it. That's, that's one reason why. So the, um, the thing that really, uh, hooked me with this movie is within like the first five to ten minutes um, be going past the the corpse being found in the water well is you see a shot of a apartment or a house and it's like kind of just surveying the 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 house and then all of a sudden it goes into a room and you're like oh some killer or some creepy crawly guys uh, getting all up in this couple, couple's business and then actually is like a horde of cops that throw the guy on the ground arrest him yeah and then they take him to an interrogation room and immediately noticeable is the lighting. Mm-hmm. All of their faces are poorly lit. It's very grainy. Um, and Ringelam talked about this and said it was very much an intentional choice that his cinematographer, um, uh, Artie Lamb, was annoyed because he wanted to make them more well lit. And Ringelam's like, that's not how reality works. Yeah. So knock it off. I flute and cinematographer. Yeah. My words. <laughs> oh man, because there's there's some other shots where I'd say it's quite the opposite, where he, they were definitely like working on some some high concept cinematography and like some like some very intentional lighting choices to like give it kind of like a like a sexy noir feel. 
Hmm. I, I don't know. I mean, there were certainly, I, I paused it a number of times because I had to rewind to make sure that I had read things properly. And so there were, there were a number of shots where I thought it was an interesting choice to have, I mean, uh, our main character, um, uh, Inspector Powell, like, I know it's not a big deal, but like, like certain body angles I just hadn't seen before or seen done in other, other films where it just seemed like a, an interesting choice to be, uh, perspective wise, you know, shooting his hands so close to the camera versus his body so far away. So it just, it was a couple things that just kind of looked funky to me. Mm. Okay. And Inspector in Powell, he's played by uh, Sean Lau, right? Ching Wan Lau? Yeah, he seemed uh, he seemed like a really good choice because he's got that anxious dad look, especially he's, with his baggy, baggy clothes, furrowed brow. He's got a he's got a total exhausted dad vibe. I I do I do appreciate too that he never like the child doesn't have a name. <laughs> the baby. Yeah, I love you and baby. <laughs> Thank you for take give me the child. Yeah, child, he, come here. He's not your typical cop that I would say like. You know, Chow Yun-Fat has like a cool coolness to him. Obviously, Chow Yun-Fat often played um, criminals. But I, I do think that um, Ringo Lam having this guy, uh, I don't know. It just, yeah, he just seemed like a, a big teenager in a way to me. I don't know how to describe his, yeah, his the, face. He has big expressive features, uh, but he's he's kind of slouchy. He's kind of dumpy. Like he's, he's the kind of guy where it's like, I, I can see, I can see how exhausted he is. Yeah, exactly. It's like a book in a mirror. he i mean he looks he looks worn out and you know there's there's this whole scene where he he's saying my gun feels heavier every time i pull it and and it's he no longer wants to be in this and and i and i heard uh someone say that ringo lamb doesn't like heroes and that um, makes sense yeah and so ringo lamb i think is is trying to portray things as honestly as possible and there's no there's no virtue necessarily in technically being the cop or being the good guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, this, this person's life is hanging on by a thread, you know, with his, his wife and his son, which are the most vulnerable part of him. And also the only part of him that kind of keeps him going. Yeah. And then his wife is like, you can't quit. How are we going to eat? You know? And she like slaps him on the arm and she laughs. <laughs> I thought she said, I thought she said the opposite. Was it? Yeah. I thought she said like, Hey, don't worry about it. We'll f- figure out it's not like we're gonna start oh that is so much nicer than what i this is dyslexic and trying to read subtitles yeah yeah did you for me i didn't i didn't catch that at all okay yeah Yeah, so this the scene that we're describing there's there's two or three of these scenes that really set this movie apart in my mind which is inspector pow is with his family just kind of being a dad and what makes them stand out is the fact that his kid and his wife are so normal and nice so i thought that he went they went out of the way to say like show that she was patient she was loving mm-hmm, she's always going to mm-hmm. be there for him um and yeah there's that scene that allison's talking about where they're on the swing set and he's lamenting how the gun feels heavier and heavier as he's gotten older and is hinting about getting out but he can't get out until he catches Quan. right because it's too personal at that point yeah yeah earlier and like just moments ago you mentioned that you are on the verge of cracking the ringo lamb code Mm-hmm. I, I gotta be honest I am still baffled by the code like the action sequences make sense to me like when I see it now it's like ah if you take equal parts Michael Bay and Larry Cohen and you jam them together mm-hmm. and this baby is from Hong Kong then you get Ringo Lamb because they're full of sort of unexpected plot depth but also like you know high octane action mm-hmm. together that's Ringo Lamb action sequence wise story wise He's very much a mystery to me. So where are you at in this cracking the code 
that you mentioned earlier? Yeah, good question. So I keep in mind, I've only seen three or four of his Hong Kong movies. Um, full alerts, like his 11th. So this is, it's post peak, right? Or I guess I would say it's peak full alert. So in the lead up to this being his peak, what we said earlier about the handover, I think it makes a lot of sense that his movies um, have been accused of being uh, pro-triad, pro-criminal, because what he's trying to highlight is that everyone's getting fucked in the end. It's really this weird, ominous, invisible hand of rich people pulling the strings, whether it's British imperialists or, you know, other corrupt people who are actually uh, getting theirs in the end. But there's like no judgment being levied towards the characters. Not to interrupt you, but I had never considered triad as being a political perspective and now my mind is blown but okay yeah oh like like political oh just saying like if if you side with them it's um anti-capitalist yeah i guess so yeah right yeah and i I don't i don't know uh completely either i mean the mainland china like communists versus the hong kong or triads i'm not i'm not exactly sure if there's overlap or not oh yeah that's interesting galaxy brain activated yeah Mm. but does that does that make sense yeah it makes sense yeah yeah, so the code to me is like a lot of anxiety because I think we said last week it was like blunt and visceral. Those were the kind of the words that we were using. And I don't think we brought up the word anxious. And so I think, I mean, given given the way this movie ends, it kind of the way the movie ends is the I did not, quintessential. I did not get it. I did not get it. Yeah, the ending. And, and I know when we get to the ending, we'll talk about it more. But like now that you bring it up, uh, all the movies that we watched, uh, Maximum Risk, Replicant and Full Alert all have a clock ticking uh, plot device. There is a timeliness to each one where in maximum risk, there's so much before the materials in the safety deposit box are public or become available and therefore the FBI secret is going to be out in Replicant. The whole idea is that this uh, killer is active and the longer they wait, more time that he has to kill. And in this one, there's the ominous threat of either one, Quan being released from prison by his gang, or two, this ominous threat of this big payday at the horse track that's going to create a heist. Mm-hmm. So there's a ticking clock in all movies. Yeah. There's also, there's like, a, a, in all the movies, there's a lot of communication between the antagonist and the protagonist. They're They're calling each other and taunting each other frequently. And mm-hmm. and so you you get the sense that it's just the they're the same person just on opposite sides of the coin, like they need they need each other in order to be relevant. So and yeah. in City on Fire, his breakout that really set him off on this trajectory in the the mid to late eighties, it was Chow Yun Fat playing an undercover cop, uh-huh. who then the cops were oh. following him, saying like, "No, he's corrupt. Like, why are you, police chief, allowing this guy to do this?" You know, and then higher ups set another guy that's separate from the police chief up to look into him basically investigating. So he's fighting all sides. Mm -hmm. Mm. Mm -hmm. So you have that all wrapped up in a single character. That is a lot of complication. Mm. It's a lot of layers there. Um, Something that came up, this is a total detail. We're going from big picture to super minutia. There's a scene after uh, Quan basically barters with the cops so that his girlfriend can walk and he goes to jail. And then Inspector Powell gets wind of the, the whole idea that there's going to be uh, a rescue attempt where they're going to bust him out of jail. And he says, hey, uh, like, we don't care. If you guys show up with AK-47s, we've got MP5s. <laughs> uh, it's basically saying, like, you know, we know, we know something's up. We're going to, you know, we're going to match you. We're going we're gonna to stop you. You're never going to get out. 
And to me, that was a like a literal Chekhov's gun situation where I thought, okay, like everybody's fucking strapped. Like it's going to go down. Like it's about to get set off. But then the bad guys show up with AK-47s and the, and the cops, all they have is like their snub nose 38s. Yep. Yep. Thinking yep. like, all right, they're, they're outgunned. And maybe that plays in like the whole like gritty realism like notion. But to me, that was like a swing and a miss. I was like, I want like machine gun battle, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Turn my front room to the dark side of the moon. Floating in a vacuum Night after night I found it very hard to concentrate Thinking what I was missing On the other side I wanna be Where they make decisions I wanna be Where they fill the box I ended up with a bunch of coked up public school boys All trying very hard to grow dreadlocks So in the lead up to uh, Kwan getting released from prison and executing on this heist uh, where he he used to be in construction, he was like an explosive expert, which I thought they nicely set up why he would be brought in to help with this job. Um, the movie gets into this, what, 15 to 20 minute segment. That's a procedural. Yeah. Um, I, I was, I was pretty whisked away by it, honestly, just the way that they were tracking the girlfriend, uh, the way that they were cat and mousing with the Taiwanese boss, um, with the explosion, the gas, gas leak. Um, I don't know. What, what did you think about the, the kind of procedural side? I thought it was great. I, the, but it is multiple movies in one movie. And I, th- I think the procedural side was interesting. I I did, all the characters are also mapped to themselves really well. So um, all the actors, I think, were chosen very well to portray these characters. I mean, you've got, uh, you've got the inspector and then you have all these overzealous cops that are feeling really emboldened because they're trying to avenge. Um, I know this is a little bit later on, but they're trying to like avenge the death of one of their, you know, uh, young, young, exactly. And, I quite enjoyed it. I, I don't know. It's a, I thought it was a really, really well done sequence all around. Yeah, I, I have to agree. I, I like the police procedural. It felt like very cozy to me as far as like what was going to happen. But uh, this movie is like multiple movies in, in one and we only get to the police procedural side for so long. Um, I thought that I did not realize how big of a plot device the girlfriend was going to be later on. Uh, because again, like this movie like pivots a couple different times. Uh, I was kind of taken out of it a little bit by like the futuristic movie computer aspect or like the all-knowing NSA aspect yeah. where they're like, <laughs> yeah. like, all right, I understand you can track cell phones and all that stuff or you can trace the phone number back where they came out. But it's like you have instant access to the uh, horse betting database computer and you're going to run down. It's like, it seemed like multiple levels of uh, anonymous information or like private information or being crossed um, by like a like a pre Windows ninety five yes. or whatever that was, and and you and you opened up my brain to something that I had cataloged while watching this, but also with all the technology that they have in order to like geolocate, like oh okay, well the the bet is coming from this apartment, this room, and this building, and they show up and they're like, there's a gas leak. And, and it's like, he, like Inspector Powell makes the wrong decision every time where he's like, go towards it. 
Like, we're going to go check it out, open the windows, do all the things. Same thing with the car in the garage, yeah. mm-hmm. the van in the garage. And then there was another time, too, where it's like he keeps like, this is the booby trap and I'm going to put my dick on it. Right. Like mm-hmm. he just, so, yeah, uh, I was I was getting frustrated with that. There were so many plot devices that were really obvious that were really, really annoying to me, especially because it's supposed to be like this kind of cerebral cat and mouse game between these two but is it and that's the other the thinking about the taiwan connection and what you're describing i'm seeing these these crowds of all these like hard-working everyday like hero cops just going to their jobs and risking their lives every day for you people yeah and i I see that repeated again and again and again and to me thinking about again like the the early taiwan reference i'm thinking is this a propaganda film like, is this, is there like a low key again, like there's like a mm-hmm. Chinese haze code where it's like, is this supposed to be like in support of like the state and like the people and like the policemen is like average, just regular Joe yeah, is like the representative, like fighting for the people. Is that what's going on here? So I was viewing that once that like the conspicuous Taiwan reference was made early on and immediately I'm thinking like political. Yeah propaganda yeah. as being a device through this movie. Holy crap. That's, the three of us saw a completely different movie. And that's this awesome. <laughs> Every review of this movie that I've read is describing a different movie. <laughs> this is so cool. So um, the way I saw it was this is a very intimate humanist tale uh, of a cop who is set up to fail by a system where he needs to prove that he's the best and he can't because he doesn't have the resources. He kept failing over and over again and he just kept getting more and more agitated. Yeah, but it was like, and- it was like, I, it was so obvious. And it's like, listen, I understand that we're seasoned film watchers, uh, but like, thank you. <laughs> but it was just like, Chekhov's gun was just like slapping me in the face. Yeah. Over and over and over again. I was like, it, they're just, it's gonna, it's gonna be right. It's right there. Like, I, so it that kind of that kind of pulled me out, and but I mm. Brady, I mean symbolically, yeah, that's probably very on point of what it means. Where it's like this person is set up to fail over and over and over again by the system that he's operating in. However, it could just be shitty writing. Yeah, <laughs> so, I, I didn't see him as being like a cop who's set up to fail. I kind of saw him as being just like a bad cop, like like kind of like bad at his job, or like or a part of a police force that was like willingly inept. If that makes sense. <laughs> no, I, I agree. And I, I think um, the fact that he was getting more and more anxious and angry, you know, the police chief called or when they were talking on the phone, he's like, yo, like you can't let your anger get the best of you. And so like then subsequently all of his lieutenants were hilariously running around with him. So there was always like four or five people staring at him like, what are we going to do next, boss? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which made it that much more compelling for me because it is a story of a guy who's on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Oh, and, yeah. Um, okay. okay. That makes the movie a lot more interesting to me. It it, it transcends its cliches because Allison, you're bringing up a lot of cliches, which I agree there are plenty. But the response of between the family, the nervous breakdown, the mirroring with the bad guy, it elevated it enough to make it mm-hmm. compelling to watch all the way up until the vault scene. Yeah, at the initial or shucks, I'm I'm forgetting exactly where it dropped. But during the interrogation of either Quan or the girlfriend, someone drops like this really great like glamour shots photo of a guy like having the the greatest day of his life. Do you remember that photo? Or <laughs> no. it's just like a guy and he's it's like he's just like like I'm, I'm making the finger guns right now, Joe Biden. And he's it's just a it's a very peculiar photograph for me. 
because he's just like smiling and having a great day. And like, this is supposed to be someone's cousin or this is like Quan before something. Does anyone remember I do, this? I do not remember that. Oh, this is the this is the friend Chen Hua that died who got his head bashed in with a shovel. There you go. Oh. Who was the one that was actually betting. Is that who, who it was? The photograph? I thought so. Okay. Because there's like a really chipper photograph and it felt really out of place. They were staying at his place. The, the house was, or the apartment was being rented in his name. I see. Okay. And that's how that came up. Yes. All right. Moving on. I love it how we're all just like, <laughs> like this is a humanist tale about a man's d- demise into hell. Listen, there, w- there was it's a propaganda film. <laughs> Something happened at the end of the movie that I couldn't, I couldn't get over. You clearly, you, you've brought it up like three or four I times. Can't. Let's go. Okay, let's, yeah, go. let's just talk about it. We have this insane vault heist. You know, we have um, Quan and who's the other guy? Pal. Pal. The boss. Um, Inspector Powell, and then there's no, Quan, no, no. the criminal. The two, the two criminals that are inside the bank salt. Oh, yeah, I, don't, I forget salt. the other guy's name. Same, uh, but we have the two criminals that are that have gone through. Basically, Quan is uh, went to engineering school or went to college and did engineering, and he understands that as a part of a measure to save money, they built a bank over this area where there's a water main or something that's coming through that they never would have moved because it would have cost too much money. So they un- he knows that there's a water main going right underneath the bank vault. Mm-hmm. So that's how they're going to access this thing. And they're in there. There's this whole, I mean, there's a shootout. Inspector Pow chases him back into the water, and then they pop out in a warehouse, because obviously. And then there's another shootout, where they're also, like, coming, like, face, they're, they're fighting, um... Quan's girlfriend is there. She's screaming, you know, like, no, 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 no. Anyway, she grabs a gun and she's pointing it at Inspector Pow and she and she's like, let him go. I'll do it. I'll shoot. And and Pow, who's also like just completely he's just a shell of a man and he's he's got Quan and he's got the gun to his face and he's threatening the girlfriend. And then he pirouettes. Oh, spins around. And she shoots him in the shoulder. And I was like, why in the goddamn world yeah. did he turn around? And then, so he shoots her. She dies. Quan freaks out and runs over and holds his lady. Mm-hmm. But the, she still got the gun. Right. So now he's got... I just was upset. I was upset. Uh, it was It was just too easy. What was too easy? But like, I don't understand. And please school me because I might just be like a total idiot with this. But it's like, I don't understand what the plot point was or the device to have her shoot him in the back, Inspector uh, Pow in the back, and then have Quan run over and and like the audience knowing that there's a gun there. And then like, but he still doesn't want to shoot. They don't want to shoot right, each right, other. Right, right. So the, the tension between him having to do his job versus him defending himself. Also, yeah, but also right. it's like, you know, if we're talking about if it's hard to kill someone, which comes up multiple times in the in the movie of like the two, the villain and the uh, protagonist talking of um, it's actually hard to kill somebody. How do, it weighs on your spirit, blah, 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 blah. But he just like fucking annihilated the guy's girlfriend oh, at the oh, end yeah. of the movie. And it's like, oh, yeah. but it, like, I, so I didn't. I didn't understand, like, as far as if we're going to be talking about, like, the morality of when you take someone's life. Like, obviously, it would seem like the the right thing to do or whatever the best thing to do would be to take Quan's life. But 
I don't know. I just didn't understand it. And it really, really like <laughs> pulled me out of it. Sorry. Hmm. So, I, don't I didn't, I didn't see, I didn't see him as turning away. I, th- I saw them as like struggling. Um, and yeah, so they, he was holding him still yeah. and then yeah, he got pulled to the side. And when he got pulled to the side, she shot the shoulder that was facing him. I thought he pushed, and then, I thought he just, I thought that dude was like, he, he like yeah. shoved his shoulder forward. I, I saw it as an intentional thing because it was sort of like, uh, pal's redemption of his role as a policeman where he's still doing his job because he's got a man to bring in to justice and he'll take a bullet because he's still doing his job. So to me, it was mm. like a, I'm still on the clock here okay. and I got to bring this bastard in. I see. And then after she opens fire, well, then it's game on. He just hoses her. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't even, he like unloaded the entire weapon into her. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I was like, wait a minute. What's this whole then back and forth right. about like. Well, he know? was on the verge of a nervous breakdown. So when you're. But then why not kill it, fucking Quan? I don't know. I just Because he saw himself in him. There was that whole conversation that where Quan called him. That's fair. But Quan <laughs> called him, uh, proactively called him after getting away. Yeah. And was like taunting him about, you know, reminding himself of him and how he uh, came in first place. And he reminded him of a guy that came in second place that he saw crying in a stall. So he's taunting him. But there's this half truth or full truth to needing to be first. Yeah. So he's driven by this obsession that just the pressure cooker got bigger and bigger to a point where, yeah, he was, he was acting out. There is the scene immediately prior to the shootout you guys are describing where uh, Powell pops out with the scuba gear on and surprises Quan and it starts just kicking the shit out of him. <laughs> it just like, starts beating him up. And there's this very anticlimactic, at least for me, moment where Quan is crawling underneath some like uh, tube metal scaffolding. And Pal just like pushes it over. Yes, yes. <laughs> I even I even remarked to the television. I was like, I'm gonna push over the scaffold. And it's like it's 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 not even that big. It's like it's like you just like knocked a chair over. <laughs> I did I did laugh at that. I was like, I'm gonna push this over. Mm. Oh. Mm. But then of course the girlfriend wakes up and she's got the gun. So whatever. Uh, but that that whole moment where we're supposed to feel like the vicarious thrill of kicking the crap out of this guy because he's been taunting Pal like this entire time and. Now you finally got this bastard right where you want him. Um, but I don't know. To me, that that whole end sequence, basically everything from the, the the horse track vault on through, it got very peculiar for me. Because you talked about p- police procedurals. And then it mm-hmm. became like this sort of uh, running revenge and then like a heist movie. And, and it, it became, it started in a very grounded place and then started to become more hyperbolic yeah like a john woo operatic movie for sure is how it reminded me yes but it also tries to sort of keep one foot on the lily pad of like gritty realism at the very end yeah or the whole thing huh i didn't see the ending as being gritty realism at all i just saw i saw i i actually didn't see it also as thrilling i saw it as like a guy who was losing my his mind where it's like he was becoming like the killer and it was uh his downfall because mm-hmm. that's that's also like a, a subplot that mentioned like it's mentioned at least through the dialogue a bunch of times is like we're not too different from each other yeah and yeah like this twinning thing mm-hmm. twinning <laughs> <laughs> The actual heist itself wasn't interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Like it, there was a lot of minutes spent on like blowtorching through the rebar and mm-hmm. using the acid. Thermic lance. 
I, I love, I love anytime, a, anytime a thermic lance shows up on film, I love it. Tell me about the difference between a blowtorch and a thermic lance, Josh. I, I will. Thank you for asking, Brady. <laughs> so a blowtorch uses two streams of fuel, gas fuel, mm-hmm. in, into like a common hose that's lit yeah. on fire. And like the flame, of course, burns things. A thermic lance, the lance is the fuel and the flame itself. So basically the, the lance is a consumable item. So you you push it into whatever it is that you're trying to burn. The tip glows red hot and will melt through whatever you're trying to cut through. Oh. Thermic lance. <sighs> have you ever seen the movie Thief with James Caan? Another Michael Mann movie? No, I have not. Okay. I so know it's very purple and pink and blue. It is. And Ooh. James Caan plays like the world's perfect asshole as the thief. But um, they use a thermic lance to get into like a big vault there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thermic lance. Thermic lance. So this movie is probably tipping its baggy hat. <laughs> Michael Mann. Can I have me baggy? <laughs> yeah, why not? Ill-fitted. Slouchy. I'm just trying to... Pro- I mean, it's, it doesn't make for a good podcast, but I just want to quietly process how all of us see this movie because we, we often see things very similarly or we're like vibing. Yeah. Or we're like yes-ending well, each other. I and was, now I'm like... I was actually like pleased whoa. that Josh and I watched this one separately. I was, I was dead to the world tired last night, so I was happy... Because I, I do think that the fact that we watch it together and you watch it separately does affect our opinion of movies a lot of the time. Um, and so, I don't know. I'd, so it's nice to it's nice that we all maybe are um, screaming about different things <laughs> in scream. the void. You haven't seen me scream. But I, I wasn't like making that up earlier when I was looking because I was trying to make sense of certain aspects of the sure. movie. And I was, I was looking at other people's like reviews or opinions or critique analysis, whatever. And everyone saw a different movie. Like every every opinion of this movie that I saw, I mean, like don't get me wrong, like there is like a peanut gallery and there is like a, a chorus of opinions that agree on some general premises here. But if you look at what people are focused on in their individual reviews, it's all very different stuff, and they all have very different takeaways as to what the movie was about. Mm-hmm. Nervous breakdown, techno thriller, political propaganda, um, guy who can't shoot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, or or. Just, I don't know. It, it just it didn't, it just, the ending just didn't make sense to me. It felt like a Mexican soap opera right at the very end where everyone had to have like their last, everyone had to have the last word. I love you and baby. <laughs> When's the last time you've seen a John, John Woo movie? Uh, Hard Target, which was a couple months ago. Okay. It was good. Yeah. It was good. The, this is a Hong Kong thing for sure. Um, mm. There's a lot of melodrama. They will creep up when it comes to the good versus bad guy. I was thinking about that. I was thinking because a lot of the movies that we watched recently were like the sincerity is just over the top. Um, it just it, and maybe the maybe the um, talk about like war and peace and good and evil are extremely heavy handed. So I did consider that, you know, as we're watching this, and specifically that it is coming out of Hong Kong. Um, you know, what kind of a message does it have? And but even so, I mean, it's still, and maybe this is just because I, I obviously don't have any kind of reference for that culture. The, the struggles that the protagonist is dealing with doesn't seem to be linear enough or make sense enough with his actions. Like his actions are kind of all over the place. So it's not like he's being driven by some moral code at all. The only thing I get from this guy is that his the circle that's protecting him is getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And so it, it is Brady, I would agree driving him insane or driving him to a nervous breakdown, but there's also, there's just no, 
anchor for the character. Yes. And that's why he's spinning into the stratosphere. Yeah. Mm. Because he doesn't have a moral center. Mm. He's just a cog in a machine that is asking him to be the best that he can be at his job. And he doesn't know why he's getting so frustrated at trying to be the best. Mm-hmm. Huh. Mm. Did we just unlock the Ringo code? <laughs> <laughs> Yes. maybe i'm projecting because i feel a sense of that in my own life to get a little personal right and and not to like center myself in this movie but i think this maybe informs why i feel this way about this movie is that yeah just that experience of like being in a high high achievement atmosphere where um getting promoted and stuff like that is so important and not really thinking through why you're doing it or why I was doing it. Yeah. Um, and getting sucked up into this, it can drive a person crazy. Yeah. Um, so I may have been mapping more sophistication onto this movie than in what I was doing, but I do think that it was I intentional. Do, no, I do think that Ringo, I, I think Ringo Lamb is more intentional I've, rather than John Wu. I, I really, really do think that Ringo Lamb um, for being more gritty and also decidedly never really giving like a clean slate to any of his characters in any of his movies. I do think that it's intentional. Um, whereas John Woo is like someone pissing into an explosion. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> um, so I, I, I don't think that we're overanalyzing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Based on what I've read, I don't think we're overanalyzing it. I think that Ringo Lamb is intentional. I think that what his intentions are may be up for debate, but the question of whether or not he's doing things intentional, I don't think that, I don't think there's any question there. I think that looking at Ringo Lamb's work, uh, up, down, left, right, wherever you, wherever, wherever it meets you, he's obviously in, in control of what he's presenting. He's presenting. The question is, is like, what is he trying to achieve? And how good is or how successful is he right. with his intent? And to be honest, I don't know how to answer both those questions. I'm not sure exactly what he's trying to say with full alert. And to question like, well, how well did he do? It's like, well, there are aspects of the movie that I really enjoyed, but there's other things that left me like, just like shaking my head. Like I have no idea. Yeah. So, so you, you mentioned this like kind of more neutral response. There wasn't anything that you had like, like, uh, pushback like Allison where Allison like was pretty frustrated or annoyed by the ending. I wasn't, I wasn't frustrated by the ending, um, or anything else in the movie that like, when you said you were shaking your head, it was, it sounds like it was more in confusion or bewilderment. Yeah. Yeah. There, there are definitely times where like the, the idea that this is like 20 different movies in a row or on top of each other definitely had me kind of like wondering like what was going on or like I was kind of getting lost in the themes that I was supposed to be following and because I couldn't figure it out I was bored like Mm -hmm. there there are parts of the movie where I was bored Mm. but I think it's because I couldn't make a determination is like is this the tense techno thriller is this the killer and cop cat and mouse is this like the unburdening of this man's soul through like the catharsis of defeating the I don't know so I wasn't sure which movie I was supposed to be following and I kind of got lost in the in the weeds. Yeah. How cool. <laughs> <laughs> this is awesome. I love it. I'm excited. Um, the only part of this movie that really wasn't working for me uh, was the lead up to the heist, right? So they, like I said, they um, they spent enough time on it that uh, I was getting bored right before the ending. So when he pops out um, in the warehouse or kind of the construction site, 
I was fine with that scene, but the scene prior to that, where they were talking through the little uh, lazy Susan <laughs> for food um, in case people get trapped in the vault, whatever. Um, that that wasn't of interest to me. However, that said, when Quan um, gets the gun pointed at him by the boss and he shoots the boss first, and then he's like gathering up the money and then he has some sort of like demon escape his body. He's just like, you don't stop, leave me alone. I thought you were going to go away. And he's like, shoots the corpse over and over again. I was like, mm, there it is. Okay, yeah, we're yeah, back. Yeah. Mm. Um, but before he shot the gun, there was a good five to 10 minutes of this movie that I was like, mm, you're losing me towards the end here. But up to that, like the, the techno procedural, I was fine. The, 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 the family stuff was great. You know, he's checking himself out in the mirror, putting on the vest, uh, feeling a lot of doubt. Like that to me was enough of a clue of how the rest of the movie is going to go. There were some really great comedic moments where, uh, you know, they like the guy escapes from the prison with a helicopter and lands on a beach and then takes a speedboat and they, they arrive at the beach and he's like, hey, go interview somebody at the prison. And the guy's like, he turns around to see the lieutenant. He's like, what are you still doing here? He's like, well, if I leave, you know, you're not going to have enough cars to like get home. He's like, I don't care. I'll figure it out. Yeah. And so like there was like an intentional comedic bent at scenes like that where you're seeing him lose his mind and it's yeah. funny intentionally. Yeah, when he's screaming at the casino IT guy, I thought that was very hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> like, we'll get them down here. Yeah. And the guy with the glasses is just like shaking his clipboard like, oh. Yeah. And we haven't even talked about one of the best car chases I've seen in a while. It was um, a good car chase. Also, the, the cat and mouse alley scene I thought was really wonderful. Oh, and the, the Bird Street? Yeah, whenever he drops his his uh, gun into like the bucket of filth. Oh god, mm-hmm. that was that gross. I love so, that. Oh, it grossed me out so much. <laughs> I was just like, I was like, they really like, they really made that look very real, and I, it, it was just like, oh god, I can't even matter. Like that's probably like oily and stinky yeah. and. Warm. Yeah, just used oil and like a single ramen noodle yeah, and probably some shit and piss and cum. Yeah, and yeah just mm-hmm. some w- wet toilet paper. Yeah. Yeah, completely. It's Portland Care Pack right there. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Portland. Yeah, well, and it was a loving tribute to Hong Kong. Um, you know, there was a lot of emphasis on different streets. The, uh, the route between the prison and, or excuse me, the jail and the prison, the transfer, that was all a route uh, that was legit. All the, the streets were legit. And, you know, they were talking about during the chase, like, hey, they're on Jackson Street and they're going on to... Oh, Burnside, whatever. Mm-hmm. And each street was legit for the scene that they were having. And so there was a, a lavish attention to detail um, that I really appreciated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hearing about how the uh, uh, car chases and most of the outdoor filming was all done guerrilla style without any permits. Like the idea of like filming a car chase with no permits seems super sketchy to oh me. Like, God, do, you, yeah. do you have like your crew like close down the streets and you just do the best you can? Like, are there people just taking their kids to school with like, like two cars like smashing into each other next to you? God, I hope uh, so. Uh, Ringo Lamb made sure to point out that between Full Alert and City on Fire that nobody had gotten hurt. And he was very grateful because he had a lot of different stunt people um, doing very risky things. Mm. Um, and he did also point out that... Uh, he called cops bluffs where it would be more expensive for the cop to go arrest him and to uh, fill out the paperwork versus like, you know, hitting the pavement themselves and finding other crimes to deal with or laziness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so that side of, of the production detail um, is pretty well known, but in terms of like closing off streets, I mean, you do see people 
very confused on the side of the road, oh, which yeah. implies right. that they didn't know what the fuck was going on. It reminds me of uh, Live Like a Cop, Die Like a Man or um, The Seven Ups where they had basically like sort of limited control, like where they're doing the same thing where, you know, they weren't going to get permits because permits are too expensive. So they were just going to just wing it yeah. and just use what uh, production staff they had to control the streets. Mm-hmm. I do think that the scene where they flipped the cars was intentionally strategically placed in a pl- uh, in an area that there was no humans if you I, notice like I it would, was like an industrial yeah 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 i'd have to imagine like under an look, overpass yeah 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 that was crazy that was really crazy and ringo always surprises me with the things he does with cars it's like he it's almost like a uh, less is more like slower is better situation where it's not about high speed and flying through the air it's like low speed and then spin the car upside down yes and it lasts like a second and a half and you're like whoa Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it has that blunt impact for sure. Oh, yeah. I also like the idea in a car chase of pulling up next to somebody and being like, okay, now that I pulled up to you, now what? That seems like a realistic car chase situation. Yeah. Where you're like, I'm going to catch up to this person. Do I, run them off? Yeah, do I run them off the road? No, there's too many citizens around and mm-hmm. yeah. I'll run them off the road into a water because this bridge is over the ocean. I don't know. Yeah. So let's just stare at each other. <laughs> that happened like four yep. times in that scene. Do they recognize you? No. (laughs) I also like the idea that the inspector um, felt so much guilt about shooting this guy that had a knife that when he was trigger happy and and shoots the guy on the on the scooter, there was like a delivery man or something. Oh yeah, Yeah. hopping a wheelie. That that stunt man had a tough day. That was. I mean, it was. I. I'm glad that they showed that the stunt guy or that the scooter driver in the movie lived because they, they show him being hauled off on a yeah. stretcher, obviously alive. But I think like you just like shot some dude randomly. Oh, yeah. And like also like where the fuck do you get the balls? Like it's this crowded street. There's people everywhere. Like you're not even close. Like you're not next to this guy. You're just going to start opening up like shooting at like a crowd of people because a bad guy's in there. Dude, I, I feel like, like that happens all the time. You're a Portland police officer. <laughs> I like that. I feel like that happens a lot. Yeah. Did he have worried eyebrows or scowling eyebrows? If it's worried eyebrows, he probably was scared out of his mind. He had nervous breakdown eyebrows. Yep. Kind of did. So you were um, mentioning the ending. Was there a part that you particularly liked? I did like the I did like the whole breakdown once he once he makes this great escape and he finds everybody and he's like making his bomb bombs. So, you know, that whole conversation, how they're going to set it up, you know, the whole the whole breakdown of why, how the safe works and how they're going to get in there. I did think that was interesting. Um, I thought everything. So the heist procedural. I did like the heist procedural. Everything with Yi specifically, though, drove me bonkers. I thought she just killed every scene for me. (laughs) Which one's Yi? His girlfriend. Okay. Uh, Monica Chen. I just every time she was in a scene, I was just like, (sighs) (laughs) (laughs) um but i yeah i would say i would say the procedural getting getting ready up to doing the bank heist i didn't mind the bank heist i thought it was interesting and then uh yeah then the beginning i don't know when you see the drowned guy i didn't realize his eyes were bulging out i thought it was a mask he had on Hmm. i I thought it was like a yakuza mask or something oh whoa no yeah i just thought his eyeballs were popping out his head because he'd been there a while Mm. i thought it was just his eyeballs oops Oops, makeup or uh, special effects people. Yeah. <laughs> Made it look like a cartoonish mask to Allison. I thought it was the FX, the FX person at the tables. I was like, oh, interesting. How symbolic that they put this <laughs> theatrical the mask, the mask on him on, yeah. with these like dish gloves. 
(laughs) (laughs) What does that mean? Architects. Don't you know architects like to wear dish 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 gloves? Gloves, geez, yeah. With grips. Josh got a pair of dish gloves. Yeah, recently. Yeah, Yeah. XL man hands. I was literally, I was literally blowing up our old dish gloves. He like, fucking he fucking exploded my dish gloves because I was tired of getting dishpan hands, so I was wearing the gloves, but the gloves are too small. <laughs> I put them on and they would just explode. Yeah, because my hands are too big. Big ass hands. Harlequin romance scene shit right there. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Get at me, Glenn Close. <laughs> your stuffy life with your rules and your kid. Maybe I'm the bad boy that you need to shake you up. <laughs> I'm going to finger blast your gloves. <laughs> <laughs> they did explode, like legitimately explode. Oh, boy. I still love that cat and mouse scene. The, the alleyway chase, it just for, for whatever reason, like using the real scene, using the real scenery, making it feel very gritty and very like suspenseful, blood on the forehead, um, the gross, you know, can of filth. That whole scene, I just love it. Like that was great. Car chases were wonderful. Uh, again, you know, Ringo Lamb always with the surprises. You know, you think you know what's going to happen, but you don't. Mm-hmm. What about you, Brady? Oh, the nervous breakdown. Uh, okay. Yeah. What, were you screaming at the IT guy? <laughs> Bring me a clipboard. Or wait, I was screaming. Because, because, I was like, yeah, damn right. So the the thing with the cars, like the the like, how are you going to get home? Yeah. Like if the you take the helicopter and this people take the and then he's yeah 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 seriously and like joking aside like all or the, or the, the like or the hotel thing too all the managerial stuff where you are like super focused on something and you have a team of people who are all trying to work together and you're so obsessed with getting that thing done mm. that you're just kind of lost in it and not realizing where you are or who you are yeah there there's so many little attention to detail moments there that. Uh, resonated quite a bit. Yeah, you really connected with this character. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, you really yeah, see yourself with this guy. Yeah. Oh, boy. Whew. Yep. <laughs> Let's pick ourselves up off the pavement. Our cars flipped. Brush ourselves off and speak our piece. Having watched three of his films in quick succession, I'm getting a sense of Ringo Lamb's capabilities and where his reputation comes from. As if Michael Bay and Larry Cohen had a baby in Hong Kong. Lamb has numerous talents. He is very capable. What I mostly enjoyed was his guiding you into a cliche and then ripping the rug from underneath you. His action sequences are crackling with unexpected fireworks, like the ambulance chase and replicant, the elevator fight and maximum risk, or the, as I mentioned before, the alleyway cat and mouse in full alert. I think where full alert stumbles is in repeatedly forcing paradoxes, grounded, imperfect, working class hero cop fighting a tittering, ice cold Hannibal Lecter techno villain, 
or production stuff like sexy noirish lighting and slick cinematography at times, framing slouchy characters in absolutely dog shit clothes. <laughs> I struggled with the flip-flopping between the grittiness and the flashiness of the story and had a hard time hitching my wagon on the lamb jam. <laughs> <laughs> Having said that, based on everything I've seen, I'm really looking forward to watching City on Fire. My favorite parts of Full Alert are when Powell digs through the slot bucket to recover his gun, and also when he dons the scuba gear to chase Quan through the tunnel. <laughs> Honorable mention to the glamour shot photo of someone's cousin in the early <laughs> interrogation scene. <laughs> For me, Full Alert is a flummoxing five. I don't know how I'm supposed to follow that. <laughs> Let me see if I can recreate my song that I did earlier. Um, Ringo Lamb, and he's really kind of bummed, and he's got gritty movies and full alert sound because it's about a dude who's going to have a mental breakdown. John Woo seems like he's more fun, and that's okay. There's less substance going on, but I'm going to say that Ringo Lamb, full alert, gets a motherfucking six. <laughs> yeah. Oh, thank you. Uh, I don't know what your alter ego is, but I'm just imagining you in like a, a sequined jumpsuit. I feel like I really let you down. <laughs> You're in a safe space. You might not feel psychologically safe. I can't speak to that. Oh boy. Yeah. So I've seen this movie now. This is the second time I've seen this in one to two months. Um, and this is the movie that prompted me to do this series because I found the, uh, set up in the way that it presented the cliches of a good guy and a bad guy to be unique. There was something askew, something strange about this movie that I couldn't quite put my finger on. And prepping for this show, like we said, the cracking of the code uh, happened for me, which made me very excited that I was able to kind of understand a little bit better about how somebody sees the world in a very different culture than me. And that's what, for me a lot of times why I like to watch international movies is to get a sense of the world in a way that other people, uh, the way other people see the world and is humbling, right? It like, it allows me to maybe chill out a little bit and realize the world's a very vast place that I know nothing about. Um, and I, so that was a very exciting, uh, thing that carried over in the second viewing. The second viewing definitely highlighted some of the weaknesses, um, including the vault scene for me. Um, but I like the operatic kind of melodrama at the end. Uh, I, I'm, I feel like it was earned in a weird way. And um, I need to emphasize like Sean Lau totally kills this movie. Just mm -hmm. this totally, like you said, slouch, Josh. Just this tall, hunched over dude in his saggy ass base shoot suit. Um, it's totally working for me. And so this movie gets a eight for mm. me. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for yeah. This yeah. is these are good suggestions. This was just what I needed. I needed some like bizarre action <laughs> movies that maybe like the action carried on like three minutes too long. <laughs> there was a moment at the end, you know, when when he, like Quan grabs the gun that's by his dead girlfriend. I was like, oh, this is gonna go on for another fucking five minutes. This isn't a Michael Bay movie. We didn't even talk about, there was, uh, we talked about when we did the Mustachio podcast, you know, how we need to see more villain suicides. And we got a villain suicide in this one. Boom. Oh, yeah. Mr. Blue touching the rail on yeah. uh, Pel taking a Pelham 123. Yes. And this time, well, I don't know if that gives anything away. Well. What? 
Whatever. Our podcast gives everything away. We are, we are, if anything, a podcast about spoilers. Yeah. <laughs> so- <laughs> Spoiler alert. We're all just wearing baggy, oversized trench coats with nothing under them, and we just open them up for everybody to see. Mm-hmm. That's right. It's just pockets of screams. Well, that will do it for our Wham Bam Thank You Ringo Lamb series. Josh, you're hosting. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Next up, two well-known and well-loved directors after numerous back-to-back successes both went off script by holstering most of, but not all of their signature moves and making tender, sentimental films that were personally important to them. And we're all the better for it. I'm calling this double feature Chicken Soup for the Hipster's Heart. (laughs) And we'll be covering The Straight Story by David Lynch. Oh, man. And Ed Wood by Tim Burton. Oh, fun. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Which is interesting because we recently covered um, Batman Returns was a Tim Burton movie and we covered Fantasia, which is a Disney movie. So we're getting both another Yay! Disney movie and a Tim Burton movie. Fantasia, which is a David Lynch movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So uh, I I hope to see what happens when you take successful directors and they do something very different, but very close to their hearts. I'm very surprised by these choices, which is a good thing. He wouldn't uh, tell me beforehand. Uh Straight Story is the only David Lynch movie I haven't seen. Oh, okay. Oh, cool. Yeah. I can't wait to uh, buy a used tractor with you and (laughs) drive down. (laughs) Slowly. (laughs) Drive down Powell. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We're not going to get ticketed or anything like that. This is great. So, yeah. I'm excited. Yeah. Awesome. So, you know, put on your sweater, something warm, your cat or your dog, maybe like a little Kleenex or two. I might have a cashmere top. Mm-hmm. But it's extremely small. How do you feel about extremely small clothing? I'm into that compared to the baggy clothing. I like I like the where this is all going. Where we've got your short <laughs> shorts coming up, and then we've got your like Patagonia vest with no shirt on underneath, <laughs> with your your dog's collar around your neck, and now we and now we also have like a cashmere top that is way too small. So it's like you've got that like like the belly area with your short shorts that's exposed. Mm-hmm. We just need to get you a pair of roller skates, baby. You'll be all right. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, geez. And then I'm, I'm just Philip Seymour Hoffman. <laughs> and <laughs> get an orange Dotson. Ugh. Well, I'm excited. Um, so real quick before we get out of here. Oh, yeah. Man on fire. We have a list. Letterboxd. Oh, yeah. Allison's been our dutiful steward of this list. Has there been anything added recently? Yes. Let me look that up for you. Remember off the top of my head, I added like two last week, two or three. Wait, does the replicant? Yeah, replicant doesn't. Yeah, okay. Um, replicant, uh, circuitry man, Mad Max two, uh, trick or treat, escape from the Bronx, Casern, hard target, maniac cop two, yes, Hellraiser two, War right. of the World. Yeah, so we perfect. Just, you know, keep them coming. Yeah. So uh, that list will grow probably much faster than our second list, which is child throwing. Solid six slash child throwing. I don't know. I'm the steward of that list, and I don't know what the last movie is. I think it may have been that John Wayne one. Uh, oh, that was suggested to us on Instagram. Yeah, yeah. But I'm. I feel like that's that's a well we need to go back to. Oh, yeah. Maybe we do a double uh, double feature of child throwing. We got to track it down then. We gotta, yeah, yeah. I'm into that. Or our hundredth episode, just like a hundred movie child throwing. <laughs> I think. I think for our hundredth episode, we just buy a bunch of those cheap plastic chairs and we just run through yes. them in the Matrix. Yeah. Or we rent a car. Yeah. Down. I'll go to um, Zoo Pans and get a bunch of uh, expired fruit. Thank you. 
They don't have expired fruit in soup pans. They yeah. would not tolerate Food that. doesn't expire if you get it from soup pans. It's just spray painted with the polyurethane coat. Well, and like and like stem cells. It's like it just it just makes you look younger the moment you walk into that damn store. Mm. Shout out to Zupans. Your olive bar is exceptional. I don't know. <laughs> it, it is. Would recommend. All right. Letterbox, my friends. I changed my handle recently to Fantasy of Fragrance. Did you really? Really? Sure did. Babe. You're breaking out. Who is this alter Who, ego? I don't know. I feel like you're just needing some changes recently that maybe I can't offer. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> this is new Josh. I'll be my, giving Glenn Close the call. <laughs> <laughs> my heart rate has gone up a beat or two. Uh, Allison, uh, who's not Allison DeGrazio in Letterboxd, even though she thought she changed it, but she didn't. I just can't find it when I look at it. It just says it's me. So anyway, I think it's Bruja Jones. That is correct. And I am Brady Kimball. Until next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Adios.